0: Yeah, well, I think sometimes if you overthink things, you'll never get started. (laughs) You have to be able to figure out, okay, what are the steps to actually figure out? How do I get this going? And then hopefully things will start to fall into place, right? And I believe that in every aspect of my life. And, you know, especially when you find that you're a little afraid to move forward. It sounds really daunting to actually go start a company or develop a new category, or now you've made something in your kitchen and you want to get it on the shelf. So what did I do? I I got in my car with some samples, and I had been going to a new market in San Francisco called Whole Foods.
1: You're listening to What I Know, I'm Christine Legorio-Chapkin. Today's episode, The Outsider's Advantage. Kara Golden had many traits of a successful entrepreneur. She had relentless curiosity, drive, and an inventor's spirit. But when she started her company, Hint Water... She'd worked in media and tech, but never big food or beverage. She didn't even start with a grand plan. She started on a whim. When she decided to try to get the lightly flavored water she'd been making in her own kitchen onto the shelves of Whole Foods, it wasn't a business strategy. It was just a personal goal she thought would make for a fun story. Turns out her lack of experience let her approach the industry with fresh eyes and with curiosity that actually gave her an advantage that helped her grow the company to the $150 million brand it is today. Not that there weren't challenges along the way. She'll tell us all about them in this episode. But before Kara Golden was the founder and CEO of Hint, she was the youngest of five kids just trying to get herself heard.
0: You know, it's interesting. I was the last of five kids. And so start and stop there to some extent. My parents had me when they were 40, which back then was like I had the oldest parents on the block. And I think also the parents that were also sort of aged, I think, in many ways by my brothers who were crazy. And so by the time they got to me, they were like, just be careful. Don't embarrass us. You know, just tell us what your plan is overall. And so I was sort of led into independence and to to sort of figuring stuff out. And most of the time it turned out great. Sometimes, you know, it wasn't perfect, but the fact that I actually was used to trying and that I was actually not always given the roadmap. Um, One example is my dad, the one rule he had in our house was that we all had to do some kind of sport. And so none of my brothers or sisters, I had two of each, did gymnastics. And so figuring out like how to get into gymnastics, how to do gym like all of those things. I had coaches and did that through high school, but it, it was really a time when I had to really figure things out because nobody else was saying like, here's what you have to do. You have to get really good at floor before you get great at bars or whatever it is. And and I think that that was sort of the earliest signs of uh, you know looking back, that I kind of had some of the skills to be able to do it. But I think more than anything, confidence, right? At a very young age, when you're not given all of the directions, when you're not given all the rules, instead you're, you know, sort of told to go, you know, figure it out, be careful, but, you know, do the best you can. That gives you a lot of creativity and allows you to sort of, cherish your curiosity in many ways and try and grow that as well
1: yeah it sounds like they give you a lot of kind of flexibility and freedom and not to use kind of an entrepreneurial cliche but a lot of using your own creativity and trying a lot of things often leads to a lot of failure whether it's you know really small scale ones um, or larger ones but do you did you feel like you learned how to fail well or, or easily or bounce back easily in those early days as well
0: Yeah, definitely, because I felt like I had to figure out how to continue going at an early age. And again, when you think back on when maybe you have challenges or maybe you have failures along the way and wherever you're sitting at that point, you're further than you were before you started right? You learned some things along the way. It's not always easy to go back and look at those times, right? Especially when they're embarrassing or are really challenging in some way. But what did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about the sport or the business that you were looking at doing? And I think all of those kind of, you know, learnings I've been able to take throughout my life as, you know, that didn't turn out so well, but then here's what happened next. And that is the ability, I think, of every great entrepreneur is to be able to take those times, whether they're good or bad, and kind of pick and choose to some extent as to what worked and what didn't. I always equate entrepreneurism to building out a puzzle, right? Except you don't have the picture. Nobody handed you the box. And so you're trying to do it. You sort of learn that it wasn't that puzzle piece that worked, but then you learned oh, well, maybe if I go in this direction instead, maybe if I keep going a little bit, that I'll start to get more clues as to what is going to work or what really is the direction that I should be going. And I think, again, you know, waking up every day and feeling grateful that you're even getting this opportunity to be able to move forward is something that I've always believed is something to cherish.
1: Kara, I was just reading your book, Undaunted, which came out a year ago. And in it, you talked a little bit about your childhood and you wrote that at times your dad um, had let his doubts, his own doubts derail his entrepreneurial ambitions. And then your older brother showed you sort of another way to approach careers. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So my dad had been a big company guy, as he always called himself. And you, know, you think about sort of life back then. He would have been in his 90s now. And it's, uh, you know, you picked a job when you were getting out of university or high school or after being in the military. And because that was at a time when, you know, World War II was going on. And he was uh, actually in the cleanup army um, after, after World War II and was living in Germany. And when he came back, he had this opportunity to go into the food industry. And so he was with a company called Armour Food Company. And I think he thought that he was gonna be at Armour Food Company for his whole life because that was that generation. You picked one job, maybe you picked two jobs, but that was it. And otherwise you were kind of considered a failure if you ended up having more than one or two jobs along the way. So while he was at Armour Food Company, he had started a brand called Healthy Choice, which is still alive and well today. And the company, Armour Food Company, was actually acquired by a company called ConAgra. So I was a little girl sort of experiencing a lot about business, but not really realizing everything that I was actually experiencing. And while he was very creative and had a lot of abilities, I mean, frankly, a lot of uh, traits of great entrepreneurs, his ability to go try and, and just his curiosity and creativity and certainly his his belief that health was really what should be emphasized and in, in foods and storytelling behind uh, the food, and et cetera, he didn't have the courage to actually leave and go start his own company. And I mean, maybe in some ways, this book was a apology to him to sort of take it easy on him for once because I gave him such a hard time that he should go start his own Company and, and, you know, why does he complain all the time about it? He has choices. I mean, still things that I think I would emphasize today, but maybe would have been a little kinder about it. And when I look back on, you know, his own frustrations now around his company and sort of his why, he had five kids and what he valued. And like his, he wanted to put food on the table, he wanted to be able to pay for. My gymnastics, all the sports that the kids were in, and keep a roof over his head. And that's what he really valued. On the same note, I have an older brother um, who is 15 years older than me. So it's almost like a different family in some ways. Uh, We have two kids that are significantly older. And then I have my other brother and sister that are very close to me in age. And he was going to high school when I was still in diapers. And so I used to sit there and watch him, everything that he did, because he did the cool stuff. Like he'd be fixing cars in the garage. He, you know, maybe because nobody else was like up late at night with him, I would sit there and watch him. He would talk to me about the fact that stereo systems, you always have to have a, you know, cassette. Tape or an eight track tape in in the car. You never just get a stereo without those kind of things. And I would ask him why. And he said, because that makes the car look more valuable and, and all these like tiny little things. He ended up going to college and then went to law school. And I remember when he came home just before he was coming home for the summer, he would tell me to ride around the block and go and see like what houses seemed to be chipped. Because he wanted to know so that when he came home, he could go knock on those doors and see if he could paint those houses. And that was his summer job. He would paint houses. Again, he planned on being an attorney. He is an attorney still to this day in Scottsdale. But what he taught me was the relentlessness, right? Sometimes you have to do things in order to be able to do things later on. He didn't want to work while he was going to law school, and yet he was paying for law school. So we had to figure out those steps to allow him to be able to do what he wanted to do. And I wrote about that in the book because I think back on you know, how many things you do as an entrepreneur that aren't your job or you don't really want to do those things, but you do them because it will help you to be able to do what you ultimately want to do or need to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. So speaking of things that um, aren't your job now, (laughs) and doing those things, after you graduated from university yourself, um, you got into media and tech. But during that path, um, working for corporations yourself, did you have that feeling that you actually wanted to start a company someday? Or or were you just sort of drifting along doing the things that you were kind of supposed to do or you thought you might enjoy?
0: I think entrepreneurism was not talked about it in the same way that it is today. Sure. There weren't classes in college that were focused on or majors focused on entrepreneurship. And I think that there were definitely entrepreneurs who were around me and called themselves entrepreneurs, but those were the crazies, right? It was
1: yeah, it was a little bit more of a dirty word back
0: then, right? right? It was like Ron Papil, <laughs> if you know who that is, right? You saw these you know one eight hundred numbers on TV and you're like, ah, oh, I don't know, mm-hmm. he seems a little nuts, right? But again, <laughs> some of them today are heroes. Yeah, so I didn't really think of myself as being an entrepreneur back then. I wouldn't have completely ruled it out I guess but I also felt like I mean look it was a dirty word in many ways or wasn't as like appealing in, in some ways as, as it is today. Again, looking back I think is such a key thing in being able to you know really figure out like not only what you learned but also how do those dots connect. I w- gravitated towards starting with you know my first job after my first media job at CNN. I gravitated towards these people that were doing the impossible because I thought that working for people like that showed promise. I didn't even think of them as disruptors. It allowed me to kind of imagine what if it takes off. And then the other thing that I really liked about a lot of these companies, and it's funny to think that CNN was kind of a young company at one point. I mean, it was like 40% of households were when I started working at CNN, To be able to go into a company like that, I don't think any of the big networks would have hired me without experience, but CNN hired me because I had a heartbeat, right? And I seemed like I would go and and work. And so there's lots of opportunities for people who are smart, who are hard workers to go into startup environments where maybe you don't fit the criteria inside of a large established company in some way. And so I saw that early on that it was a place to jump in and learn, but also rise, right? And rise pretty quickly if you were willing to do a great job. So between CNN and then when I moved out to San Francisco, I had had an Apple computer, a Mac when I was in college. I saved my babysitting and waitressing money to buy one so I didn't have to type out papers on a typewriter. And I sort of geeked out at this guy, Steve Jobs. And the company that I worked for was a spin out of Apple. I didn't work for Steve or Apple, but these five guys that I worked with did. And uh, they were doing this CD-ROM thing. And and again, for CD-ROMs in 1995 were the main reason, their why for existing was because bandwidth, was not where it is today. I mean, the idea of doing a podcast was impossible. We were still in chat rooms on dial-up. And if your brother in the next room, you know, picked up the phone and you got disconnected, it was crazy, right? You you couldn't imagine even doing kind of the stuff that we do today on on video conferencing, et cetera. So I think working for people who were very entrepreneurial that I joined knowing that it might not work out, but hopefully I'll be able to get some great experience and then I can go do something else. And by the time I got to the startup to market, we were acquired a year later by a company called America Online. It's funny because I think back on, you know, when we were acquired and Steve Case probably wouldn't want to hear this, but we were not, America Online was not number one. I mean, I would explain it to people, uh, friends of mine and family, and I'd say, our company just got acquired by America Online, and they'd say, American Online? Do you remember that? Like, back, way back when? Wow, when yeah. No one could get the name right, and, you know, it was a crazy time. It was, you know, there were companies like CompuServe and Prodigy, and, mm-hmm. and AOL was number three. Yeah, wow. Watching a company, to go from being an underdog to being number one, and then you know, going through another set of acquisition with my former companies, uh, CNN and, and uh, Time Inc. I mean, it was just, it was insane, like watching how that all came together. So again, being through my journey, I think was super helpful for me when I finally got the idea to go and start a company. I just wanted to get a product on the shelf in order to help people because I had seen how giving up my diet soda had helped me, but I still wasn't saying I'm going to venture into entrepreneurship or I'm going to start my own company. For me, it was about a product.
1: Right. It's a very different thing working in, you know, kind of that Fast growth digital companies, or or companies making tech products or software, right? Rather than a physical product, it almost seems like an entirely different world, entirely different. But you had had that experience in making those big deals happen and seeing them unfold. So that's really, really interesting. And I, I bet that informed you later in the journey. But you just began speaking a bit about the the very beginning of Hint, which started when you you gave up the diet soda you were drinking for health reasons and and began drinking kind of cleaner water with fruit essences in it. How did you take that leap then to saying this should be on store shelves? This should be a product. I'm going to bottle it.
0: Yeah, well, I think sometimes if you overthink things, you'll never get started. (laughs) You have to be able to figure out, okay, what are the steps to actually figure out? How do I get this going? And then hopefully things will start to fall into place, right? And I believe that in every aspect of my life. And, you know, especially when you find that you're a little afraid to move forward, it sounds really daunting to actually go start a company or develop a new category or now you've made something in your kitchen and you want to get it on the shelf. So what did I do? I got in my car with some samples and I had been going to new market in San Francisco called Whole Foods and loved it. Weird, weird I've heard of it. Yeah, loved <laughs> it. It was so beautiful. It was, you know, it, it made me actually want to eat and buy all these beautiful produce that I had never even thought about purchasing. And I think I envisioned that The place where I would find a product like I had created in my kitchen, it would definitely be here. If it was anywhere, it would definitely be here. And it wasn't there. And that's when I thought I would just ask the question of the person who worked at Whole Foods. Nice guy. He was stocking the shelves. I said, how do I get a product on the shelves? And he said, oh, well, we actually have a local program that if you're producing this product locally, I'm thinking... Well, I just made it in my kitchen, and so that's pretty local. I had no idea what I was doing, but I actually thought, frankly, Christine, it was a little funny. Like, if I could actually get it on the shelf at Whole Foods, I had taken a few years off, uh, had been gone from AOL, was spending some time with my young kids, and I thought, what if I could actually get it on the shelf? Like, it'd kind of be a little bit of a goal, and if nothing else, I thought it'd be a great dinner party conversation. Like, what did you do during your time off? Well, I got a product on the shelves of the store called Whole Foods. Like, I just didn't take it very seriously. I didn't worry (laughs) about it. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I just thought it'd be really cool. And I also led with this idea that if I could actually make it happen, I had seen what it had done in my own life to make me healthier by giving up these diet sweeteners. And if I could actually help other people... It was to me just like it had a bigger purpose. And this was over 16 years ago when people were not talking about mission driven companies or purpose driven companies. It was like it was at a time when I really thought if I can launch a product rather than being lectured by people to, you should really be drinking water, you should do this, you should do this obviously i'm not listening as a consumer or i hadn't been listening and there's probably a lot of other people who haven't been listening either because diet soda industry then and now is a huge business and the entire world of healthy perception products had just become so magnified to me during this period of time maybe it was because i was spending more time thinking about what i was feeding my family that's when when I really started thinking about what I was putting into my own body. And, and I think not being afraid to fail is probably the key thing that I learned from great entrepreneurs, including Steve Case and Steve Jobs and Ted Turner, many, many others that I didn't know and still don't know but have read about. And so I think like, It sort of starts there. And I think that more than anything, the thing that I tell so many entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs is if you don't believe that you can do something, if you fear it and you allow those walls to be uh, the stop points for you to move forward, no one is going to help you move forward. It really starts with you. So before you can ever get your idea off the ground, you have to believe and you have to be able to visualize that you can do it and that there's a market for it.
1: Kara, in your book, you note that sometimes having no information is the best approach to a problem. You wrote, not having the burden of institutional information. I thought that phrase was really great. Um, what do you mean by that? And how did, was that a part of your life when you were starting Hint?
0: I think my biggest insecurity in starting Hint was that I didn't actually have beverage experience. I didn't have CPG experience. I had never worked in a physical goods company, right? So I had been working in media and working in tech, which was like bits and bytes, right? And so I think for me, again, I was in my own way, saying like, I can't accomplish this. I need to go hire these people from large You know, soda companies who really know what they're doing because I don't know what I'm doing. And instead, I think by accident, I really started asking people when I would hear things that I didn't understand, I would ask people, why is that the case? Why do I have to put preservatives in my product? Everybody was putting preservatives in products, but I didn't understand why you needed it. And so I would ask those questions and people would say, wait you're starting a beverage company but you like where did you work before and i'd say oh i i worked at america online it was meaningless to people like they immediately discounted me because i didn't actually work in the industry that they felt like i should work in that i was not knowledgeable that i wouldn't be successful i was a waste of time to talk to and what i found was after a while there were many people who wouldn't talk to me or shut the door on me, hung up on me, whatever it was. But I found that if I kept going, if I kept asking questions, after a while, people would say, wait, so why did you leave AOL? And that's so interesting. Oh, really? You ran the e-commerce partnerships for AOL? That must be really different and really unique. They would start to figure out that I had figured out kind of hard things or what they perceived as hard things. And so then they would be more invested in helping me to figure something out that I was trying to figure out. And it's interesting because I think if I would have worked in the industry, no matter what I did, they would question why I was asking these questions and they would think that I was not capable of learning or something. But because I'd come from another industry, it was actually an advantage. So it's something that I take even a little farther today, where if you can actually go into a room where you think there's a lot of smart things happening, uh, maybe it's different industries that you're curious about, that you want to learn more about, that's where the real learning takes place. And that's where your brain starts to, I believe, kick into gear to think about how can what they do help my business in some way, but also It helps you to sort of create your new goals and your new dreams for wouldn't that be so cool if we were doing XYZ because that's happening in the eyeglass industry and yet it's not happening in the beverage industry. Most people can't see that their connections because they're totally different industries, but instead when you start to bring different things that are happening in other industries over to your business, That's where this thing called disruption or innovation actually happens. And so I'm a huge believer in trying to find those rooms, trying to find those people that allow you to be more educated, get smarter. And I think, again, if you work in the industry, it's harder to be able to, they want you to be the expert tomorrow versus actually going and figuring out, you know, what is possible.
1: Right. I mean, looking at something with a fresh set of eyes, right? That's absolutely one of the keys to, to innovating. Um, and having that, it strikes me, though, that having that outsider's advantage, that ability to approach something in a completely fresh way and to have your questions answered, no matter how kind of basic they are, it requires this um, really insatiable curiosity, right? And it requires that charisma to get in the room and put yourself up in these places to ask those questions, right? Um, those strike me as traits and skills that you you came into this with. You are already possessed. Um, do you have any pointers for other folks who want to approach something in that same way to kind of get yourself into those right rooms and to get yourself into that curious mindset?
0: Every day, I would think about kind of what I had learned today, and I still do. I still do that. It's actually, you know, I would say that it's the way my brain has always worked, I, it's hard to turn off, right? It's hard to separate out what happened for the day and just totally turn it off. And I think part of it is because I'm so passionate about it and I'm so curious. But that skill, I believe, can be learned. And the way that you learn it is just by asking yourself, kind of challenging yourself to really understand what did you learn today? What was hard for you today? And you know, maybe that's even sort of mindfulness and, and meditation in some ways, because you can be your authentic self, right? You can start to figure out the things that are harder for you. And don't stop there, but instead, put it on a list of things that you want to go figure it out. Maybe you're sitting in a room and people are talking about EBITDA, and you have no idea really what EBITDA is, because that's not—you've been— a journalist for your whole life and never written about finance or whatever it is, why don't you take it upon yourself to go learn something like that? Go on, you know, YouTube and go and figure out what EBIT is or how to write a business plan or whatever the skill is. And again, I think that being able to do that and take those kind of learnings from your own life is one really key area to start at. But I also think Finding these different conferences, it's a really interesting point because I think over the years, I think people have known when I go to other conferences that that's kind of my purpose. People will ask me, they'll meet me for the first time, and they'll be like, oh, wait, why are you at this conference that is talking, I mean, this was back in 2010, about direct-to-consumer, what, what is it? I mean, does Hint sell online? I mean, everybody was really surprised. And I said, no, I, you know, I actually used to be at America Online. I was very interested in this world. And I'm just here because I want to learn and try and figure out how that applies today to the business that I'm running. And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But once you actually maybe show your vulnerability, how maybe you shouldn't be in the room, but you're here anyway and you're meeting new people and some of them you stay connected to afterwards. They start to tell you about other conferences that are maybe smaller to some extent and where you might be able to go into those rooms and learn a little bit more. And I think just being open to kind of putting yourself into a room where maybe you see a topic that you don't really know much about. I tend to gravitate towards those. Because I feel like if nothing else, I'll learn something new that I didn't know a few hours ago. And I think it's a really, really important thing, no matter what stage you are in your life. And frankly, I think another thing that I've thought a lot about is the higher you get up in an organization, whether or not you're an entrepreneur or maybe you're a C-suite executive in a large public company, I think that boredom really starts to set in when you're not focused on making sure that you are learning, right? You're in this position of managing and mentorship, which is all great. But if you are not learning, I believe that it is really challenging to be happy and that you have to make sure that you are learning something every single day. And the best way to do that is to put yourself into situations where you are not the wisest in the room.
1: That's a great point. Let's go back to the first few years of actually starting the operations of Hint, starting distribution, starting to to hire lots of people and running a real company. Um, What was the, the one or two biggest challenges you faced in those first few years?
0: Well, I think learning the business and learning, you know, not only about getting a product on the shelf, but also I would say that one of the biggest challenges that I totally underestimated was that we were starting an entirely new category. And so for those of you who have never thought about that, and it can be in any industry, but when you start a new category, the toughest challenge is that you have to educate, whether it's consumers or if you're doing a B2B product, it's you know other businesses about why it's needed because no one is actually going to, engage with a product, whether it's a physical product like Hint or a software product or whether it's paid or free or whatever, if they don't feel a need for it. Maybe you'll get trial, but they're not going to stick with it unless they really feel like they need it in some way. And so for us, again, direct-to-consumer didn't come for our business until 2012. Nobody was really buying groceries online. There had been a You know, storm that had gone on with some grocery delivery businesses uh, that had been massive failures. And until Amazon really kind of led the way for grocery delivery, I don't think that that was happening too much. And so for me, I think that it was really looking at. How do we get the word out about Hint, not only to consumers, but also our gatekeepers, the grocery buyers who weren't allowing it to be on the shelf because we were the only product in the category. I thought that being the only product in a category, right? I show up, I'm like solving a problem around unsweetened flavored water. And the number of buyers who said to me, you're not in a planogram. Your category doesn't fit. It's water flavored water with sweeteners in it, diet soda, juice, and regular soda. And so where do you fit in there? Right. Where do we put you on the shelf? Nowhere. And then they'd say, oh, well, who else is doing this? And I'd say, no one. And then they'd say, okay, well, we're going to pass for now. We're not really interested because you're the only one. So it must not be that important. And so in, in many ways, I felt like I didn't know how to solve that problem. And the only way I knew how to solve that problem was to figure out, how do I focus on the consumer? How do I get more consumers to understand that this product is needed in their life, that it will be helpful to them as it's been helpful to me? And so we started doing a lot of sampling and getting the word out about the product and letting people taste the product. And... And then ultimately I think where we really got our next big break was inside Google. And when Google actually decided to buy drinks for their employees with the food that they were making for them because there weren't enough restaurants around the Google campus for people to be able to go out and have lunch, so they started hiring chefs to come in and cook for Google employees and a friend of mine that worked there, uh, who actually had reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in a role at like Google, said, if you're interested, maybe Google would buy some water for the employees. And I don't even think he thought he was helping us out. I think he thought he was like hydrating his fellow employees, <laughs> right? And he yeah. was and and that's when Charlie, at who was, you know, the head chef at, at Google, uh, I, you know, he said, "Sure, I'll I'll give it a try. I like Omid a lot, and who was the one that introduced us?" And he said, "We'll see what happens." And within a couple of weeks, I, I'll never forget. He reached out to me and ordered three hundred cases of of Hint. And I said, "Charlie, I don't even know if I have this much in my garage. I mean, I this is how much do you guys think you're going to go through? I mean, this is crazy." And so it was really when we became a part of silicon valley that the pull into grocery stores and the the buyer started recognizing that we were the real deal. And it's funny, I mean today people ask like who's your competition? We compete on the shelf with lots of other beverages, but there aren't very many still waters that are unsweetened flavored still water. There's plenty of competition in the carbonated space, which we have a carbonated fizz product of Hint as well, but it's really the still water. we're probably 95% of that category still to this day. So, but when you don't have competition, it's sort of counter to what I had thought was a good thing.
1: When we come back, I'll talk to Kara about how her biggest customer canceled on her, almost tanking her business. But first, a quick break. So as Hint continued to grow, Kara, what obstacles did you face in terms of your own leadership and managing? I know that running a large company is so different than founding a startup, so different than running a company that's a handful of people, um, you know, just trying to make those initial calls and make those initial deals. But once the company became a sizable one, um, what, what did you have to do to grow and learn into your new role?
0: Well, I think as we were growing up, I mean, it was almost like six years later when I felt like we were still getting opportunities to get on the shelf, but we were starting to really kind of hit walls in terms of our placements. Like I always share with like little companies who are starting, especially in the food and beverage space, where you have an opportunity because you're brand new to go get it on the shelf. But once you actually start selling your product, and even if you're only making a little bit of money, a lot of the grocery stores expect you to pay slotting fees. And we didn't have the money to go and pay lots of slotting fees. And so it it wouldn't have netted out to any type of money in our pocket or profitability for us. So we were sort of looking at that challenge. How do we grow without actually paying lots and lots of money? And I think that that was sort of like one challenge. Then we ended up, figuring out that there's some places that don't actually require slotting. And one of them was Starbucks. So one of the stories I talk about in the book is with Starbucks, where we got an incredible opportunity to go into Starbucks. Initially, it was to be a test with just a few um, hundred stores, and then it ended up to be chain-wide and over 6,000 stores. And I remember... Be so excited about the opportunity. We didn't have to pay slotting. They were just going to have one of our flavors, one skew, our Blackberry hint. And uh, I said to the buyer, so what is success? Because here I had been dealing with a lot of these grocery stores saying, well, your sales per square foot are you know similar, if not higher than some of the other brands that we have on the shelf. And they're paying slotting. So why aren't you paying slotting? And so I'd I had been used to having that question asked of me. So I set it back to Starbucks. I said, so what is success? I mean, what, how many bottles do I need to sell per store per day? And, and the buyer said, you need to sell a bottle and a half per store per day, not overnight, but eventually, and then you're doing great and we'll be very happy with you no guarantees, but they said we'd be happy. So within six months, we were selling three bottles per store per day. And I I looked every morning at that, at the data and at the sheet. And I said, we're rocking it. And it just kept going up, kept going up. So a year and a half later, we were killing it, in my opinion. The buyer changed, reached out to me and said, we'd love to have a call with you. And uh, I I thought, okay, it's just introducing them to, you know, us. And it was a pleasant enough conversation in the first few minutes. And then she said, I'm really sorry to share this news with you. We're going to be removing you from the Starbucks case. This was millions of dollars in business. Here I am, an entrepreneur. Everything seems to be going great. And overnight, I'm hearing that we're being removed. And I said, you must be thinking of another brand because that can't be us. We're killing it. The buyer told me a year and a half ago that if we did one bottle, one and a half bottles per store per day, we're rocking it. We're doing triple that right now. And she said, I'm really sorry, but we're redoing our case and our strategy. And you know this is what we're doing. And I didn't know what else to say, but to ask her when. And she said, in two weeks. Two weeks. So I had to go back to my investor's my entire team, tell them that this may be it. I mean, this may sink the company. I had tons of product that was already created so we would be able to deliver and sell the product. It was going to go bad in the warehouse. And I wasn't exactly sure what to do in that situation. And this is a story, too, about sometimes bad things happen, failures happen, learnings happen. But you have to figure out how do you continue moving forward? How do you stop the block, right? What was I gonna do with that product that was gonna go bad in the warehouse? But also how was I gonna develop other business? And then I also started to think another about one other really important sort of piece that I think is really important for entrepreneurs. It's why do you care so much about this situation? And I think for me. It was very obvious, 40% of my overall business was sitting in the hands of somebody or a team of people at Starbucks who had changed strategy. I wasn't, it wasn't personal. I wasn't part of their strategy to discontinue the product because they disliked me or disliked our company. They had to do what was best for their company. But because it was 40% and I was relying on that, that was so tough for me. And I never really realized it until that moment that if you don't diversify, if you don't understand what your other options are, if a piece of business goes away, if a supplier goes under, if your pandemic comes into place and what is plan B, if you have an employee that decides to leave and they're the only one that knows how to do that particular piece of business. You have to always be thinking about that as a leader. Otherwise, you care and you go into triage mode. And triage mode can be fine and it can eventually work out, but it's stressful along the way. And so we were clearly in st- in triage mode, but that's when I got an email from a buyer at another Seattle company, Amazon. And they said the first thing, the first sentence in the email was, I buy your product every morning uh, when I get my latte at Starbucks. I didn't know if I should actually tell him that we were being (laughs) discontinued. And uh, he said, how quickly can I get some hint? He didn't say BlackBerry hint. He just said hint. And I said, you know, we had an overrun of our product that we have in the warehouse. And if you want a wire payment, then I can actually ship it out today. And he said, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I just decided that I wanted to actually do beverages as part of this grocery offering. This was brand new on Amazon. And so because we were able to have product available right away, we were able to not only get onto Amazon and be one of the first Uh, beverages on Amazon, but very quickly we learned that this product was a product that people wanted to subscribe to. And so I sort of go back to the Starbucks situation where it's a situation that was hard. It was a time that I learned a lot about not only about figuring out how to move forward, that hard times don't last forever, But ultimately, if I wouldn't have had that opportunity with Amazon, maybe I wouldn't have had enough product in our warehouse, I wouldn't have made the decision to start our own direct to consumer business because that's when it became glaring to me that even though Amazon was an online business, they weren't going to give me the data to actually be able to go back and uh, retarget um, you know, re-engage. They weren't going to be able to offer every single one of my flavors to the consumer. And neither was Target or Starbucks or any of these other stores. And so when I launched the direct-to-consumer business for Hint, I mean, that was probably just shy of a year after we had been eliminated from Starbucks. And in some ways, I thank Starbucks for you know that opportunity full circle because it really allowed us to have that relationship with the customer a little bit more than even what I had wanted. And fast forward, last thing I'll say is uh, that business today is about 40% of our overall business on drinkhint.com. Uh, we're still available, not in Starbucks, uh, but on Amazon and lots of other stores nationwide. But again, taking challenging times and failures and figuring out how best to manage your business and what you've done wrong and take those times as learnings are really the key to any challenges that you have.
1: Great. Kara, thank you so much for being here today.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: After speaking with Kara, what has stuck with me is her great mix of curiosity and resilience. I don't think there are many people who would naturally look back at the place she started from, having almost no information about the industry she was trying to break into, and look at it as an asset she carried with her. But I think she's realized that it would be so difficult to do it again to create a new product category and try to break that category into store shelves, that she's realized the outsider's advantage is real. But to make it work, she needed that sense of curiosity and her own belief in herself to keep coming back to the people who could help her answer her many questions. And sometimes when you're that much of a lifelong learner and that curious, you're just still going to get no's. Kara has learned that no's are inevitable. You have to take them sometimes. But how you react to that circumstance might just shift the course of your business, as it did with her Hint Water, when its biggest buyer canceled. And from that, that one no, she forged ahead and made the future of direct-to-consumer selling for the business. So ask the questions, no matter how basic and expect some no's. It's what you do with them that matters. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have a friend who would love our show, please send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have any ideas of founders you'd love to hear from, drop us a note at whatiknowatink.com. You can also let me know on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer, who, like Hint, is vegan and free of sugar, sweeteners, MSG, nuts, soy, gluten, and preservatives, is Joshua Christensen. What I Know's production assistant is Blake Odom with editing by Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine ligorio Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.